this sleepy little town wakes up. What's going on around here? We're a psychokinetic race, almost pure mind. Everybody in this town is under some mysterious spell that turns us into a pack of sheep each night. Is that right? Find out why Lee Grant and Leslie Nielsen are night slaves next. Hey everybody, it's your old pal Ben Reiser. Welcome to another episode, and they said it couldn't be done. Another episode of 70 movies we saw in the 70s. And tonight's episode, I think the we is royal, because I think out of the four of us talking, I'm the only one who saw this movie in the 70s. Is that right? Definitely. I never even heard of it until you... (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) same here. That that part makes sense. Um, uh, Across town for me, well, not really across town but a couple neighborhoods away is my dear friend jim healy jim how are you doing tonight i'm doing very well glad to be talking night slaves with you it feels like it's been forever since we did our alien episode. has been a while yeah i don't know this life man it gets in the way of these podcasts but our very special guest tonight guests plural tonight a long time coming the stars of one of my favorite podcasts, I Eat Movies, Mr. Dino Preserpio and Mr. Mike Kenny. Hello. Uh, Hello. Hey, Dino, do you want to talk about like your day job or your 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 other business or do you just want to talk about your podcast or... Like, um, I remember Mike and I used to make mm, people introduce themselves, so... Right, right. And, and, and they would always... And they would always... Uh, <laughs> and they would always... Uh, Act awkwardly after that. Uh, we we are both uh, try not to speak for Mike, but why? What the hell? No, We're both enor- enormous fans of uh, of all the podcasts that you've done, including Lifers. Um, though I think I keep up with that a little bit more. Uh, I yeah, m- Mike and I kind of stole the idea of a podcast from you and and Mike McPadden. We sure um, did. And, uh, and yeah, I, I work, I work for, I'm a record dealer. Um, I've been a record dealer for, I don't know, about 15 years, I suppose. And I currently work for the archive, which is the store, um, element of vinegar syndrome in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And we, by virtue of, I guess, um, yeah, by virtue of crackpot cinema and 70 movies you saw in the seventies, uh, which I think um, definitely helped me get through all of last year. We kind of decided to start our own like podcast talking about movies that were relatively under discussed. Uh, does that sound about right? That sounds about right. That that's how I recall it, at least. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's. I mean, first and foremost, thank you to Ben and Jim for having us on this show. Uh, it's an enormous honor because, like Dino said, we're such huge fans of all the work that you guys have done and it really the genesis of our podcast really comes directly from you guys uh it was just the idea of championing and celebrating offbeat cinema or kind of as dino said under discussed films um because in this day and age it just seems like there is just a a total overabundance of cinema fighting for our attention on streaming services, things that are lost on VHS, things on television and whatnot. So it's really cool to kind of celebrate things just to take a minute, 
and talk about one or two of these under-discussed films and really research the hell out of it and give people a reason to seek out certain things. So again, to Ben and Jim and of course uh, Mike, um, that comes directly from you guys, so it really influenced us to kind of get off our asses and launch I Eat Movies. So thank you, Sis. Well, that's that's lovely to hear, especially since I think you guys do such a great job on your on your podcast. And I, I thank I'm, you. I'm I'm touched. That's very that, that We had anything to do with with what you're doing now, so that's nice to hear. Uh, uh, Jim, um, uh, I do want to say you'll always be uh, the ombudsman to me. <laughs> I hope to continue in that role. I'm I'm right now. I'm just filling in for Scott, but uh, you know, I'm all, I'm always there being a nudge. Mike, before we get into the thing, uh, can, can, do you want to talk a little about about the Mahoning and exactly how much time you have spent there over the last uh, oh, six months or so? Yeah, oh like, yeah, yeah. I don't. I months? I just remembered what my wife looks like today because I feel like I see so little of her because <laughs> I'm at the drive-in. Um, yeah, the Mahoning Drive-in in Lehigh, in Pennsylvania, is really a home away from home. Um, or maybe this your is, home is the home away from home. <laughs> yeah, I think that's more accurate. You're right. Yeah. Um, and it's a little funny that he talks about his home because he's at work and he his his house is on the synagogue compound. Yeah. So like <laughs> if he's not if he's not tied to the drive in, he's basically there. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Work and home are very interchangeable uh, in my in my situation. But yeah, uh, when I'm not home consuming movies and talking to um, the schmuck across the way uh, on our podcast. Uh, yeah, I'm always at the Mahoning Drive in in Lehigh in Pennsylvania. Um, they are really the premier drive-in in this country that's really championing a 35mm exhibition just week after week doing the most insane programs that you possibly could see. Uh, I know at the before we started recording, you guys were complimenting me on my Go Ape shirt, which they did a whole Planet of the Apes marathon earlier this year. Um, just a plethora of different events like Zombie Fest and Camp Blood. Almost always everything on 35mm. It's, you know, it's a it's an institution that's brought upon, you know, that's able to do what it does uh, through the people that love film so much. So it's really um, like a family community there. The people I've met there, Dino included, have become some of like the best, best friends I've ever had in my life. So that's a cool thing to kind of experience celluloid under, you know, on one of the biggest cinemascope screens in the country and then, you know, have some of the coolest people around you. So, yeah, I can't can't stress enough to make the Mahoning Drive in an international or at least a domestic destination for people, which many people in this country have done already. So I hope Ben and Jim come out uh, soon enough. I will definitely. I, I came so, so close to going to the Ape Fest. Oh, gosh. I just, but uh, yeah, just in the, in the end, it was just a conflict for my schedule. But So you ran, did they, they ran all five Apes movies on 35? They ran all five. They did uh, Planet of the Apes beneath on night one and then three through five on night two with other, you know, cool stuff. Uh, I think Dino had pictures and shared it on our Instagram page. Was, um, was there only one problem with one print or did that happen? I was only there for one night. And, yeah. And, yeah. And they was, restarted what the first movie. Right? It was the first one. Yeah. There seemed to be a projector problem, but they got it back up and running. That was the only that was the only hiccup. But we didn't miss anything. Thankfully, they did rewind it. Um, but that was fun. I got to dress up in a really fantastic ape costume uh, working hand in hand with exhumed <laughs> films <laughs> who co-sponsor. Yeah, so, 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 Mike, talk about what you do at the Mahoney when you're there. 
like other than well, watch the movies i mean i i there is no credit to be taken i mean first and foremost i am um, a movie goer there but i've just it, it's when you become so tight with the people that are the quote-unquote actual employees there the line really blurs uh, you know, we get there and it becomes, oh, it's so good to see you hugging and out. Would you mind grabbing that box? Can you bring this over here? Yeah. And then it becomes slowly but surely, oh, I'm, you know, dressing up as an ape and I'm greeting customers and we're, you know, dressing up as Daniel LaRusso and facing off doing crane kicks on top of the concession stand. And so, yeah, the line blurs and it becomes more like I'm here for the hang and incredible movies but then it's like i just want to do everything i can to make the experience as memorable for people that can't come from all over the country yeah you're like an ambassador yes thank you <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it i'm an ambassador sure yeah. they also haven't p- found a polite way to ask him to not keep coming so. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah well i'm sure you're at the bottom of the list of people they have that they probably want to say yeah. maybe not come so much um, yeah, just stop coming we're sick of your face yeah. it should be noted this drive-in is entirely repertory they don't they don't have digital projectors their closest thing to a digital projector is kind of like a makeshift thing that they did uh they only play old movies and um with the exception it, of this last weekend where they played once upon a time in hollywood as part of tarantino ogogo that is the most recent film i think they've ever played so okay they 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 gave up playing first run movies a long time ago i'll put it that way but they uh, still do i know i saw in the documentary about it they were doing a vhs night do they still do that that oh, is yeah. one. Yeah, Dino can talk more to that. But that's yeah. uh, that's VHS Fest. I've only missed one of them. Uh, it's funny because there are a lot of volunteers and a lot of people. Like Mike is actually kind of senior. Uh, the young punk that he is, he's kind of senior there because there's so many younger people coming. But a, a, an event like VHS Fest is, um, I think it's is it it's, is it three? It's two days. It's a two day affair, and there's people who only come to that event. And I've sold VHS uh, there. There's people out there that only rape. That's all they do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I will but, never uh, stop making that joke every time it comes up. <laughs> Stupid. Fair enough. Wow. Um, but yeah, uh, it, the VHS Fest is maybe not, I, I don't want to speak badly of it. I love the promoters. I love the two guys who uh, put it together, Josh from Lunch Meet and Ross from Saturn's Core. Um, it's a little bit more shtick than it is the highest, uh, well, I'm, I'm talking to two professional film programmers, the highest um, quality uh projection value considering they do they do strap together three or four projectors to create a digital image from a laptop that's hooked up to a vcr to play a a videotape on a enormous screen um (laughs) but that said it's amazing it's 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 literally it's the best vhs event i can imagine and it's oh even though of course it's going to be mostly horror it is literally a celebration of 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 physical media so i i'm totally that's totally me right there yeah yeah well speaking of physical media and stuff that i don't i guess this i guess this movie we're talking about tonight which is night slave by the way in 1970 American television science fiction horror film. And this is, I believe, the first TV movie that we've covered on 70 movies we saw in the 70s, although it probably won't be the last because I saw a bunch of them in the 70s, and uh, there are some good ones. I don't know about this one, but, I mean, there are some good (laughs) 70s TV movies. I mean, you know. 
I, I think we're in a renaissance for TV movies right now. I, I, I was very fortunate to just do a commentary for um, a TV movie that I that I like and I don't love. And now I'm in this place where you, you know, I knew I knew this fact already where you if you make anything you release it to the world and the world decides what it is you don't have any say anymore which is fine but i honestly thought in the box set from fun city editions primetime panic uh i honestly had the sinking suspicion that the movie that i contributed and worked on might be the least liked of all of them and now i'm i'm kind of getting the feeling it's not um (laughs) but uh that's dream that's dreams don't die it's uh, an ike eisenman it's an abc um an ABC TV movie with Ike Eisenman um, and Trini Alvarado that is a little... It's typical of the time for a moralistic, very kind of heavy-handed um, yeah. TV what movie. What year was that? It was made in 81 and released in spring of 82. But it's entirely filmed um, It's all in New York City, mostly in Queens. And I believe it's the first graffiti narrative story made. It predates almost all the... Um, uh, graffiti themed movies and even uh, what's considered like the big breakthrough book uh, subway art it all all this was made was made the year before or earlier in 1982 um, so it has this great place in history because they actually decided something living to doll. A, a real subway writer uh, Dondi white to do all the technical work and 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 he's all over it I showed it to his protege who was one of the who, who's a, a friend of mine and he literally said, like, this is the best document that I've seen of him from that period of time, right when this guy was entering galleries and so forth. Anyway, point being, there's a lot of TV movies right now that are <laughs> that need to be exposed and people are working to expose them. And um, I can tell you that the fan base for, for um, Primetime Panic, which is still shipping, people are just getting it. There are fans asking for the second volume of this three TV movie box set, which hasn't even been designed yet. So, but there will be one. Sounds like because I think the odds are I I can I can neither speak for Vinegar Syndrome in any aspect. Uh, I can that's that's legally the case, and I cannot <laughs> um, I cannot speak for a, a Fun City Editions. But um, yeah, there's a chance certainly. Well, I'm I want to pitch Night Slaves for Volume Two because I'd like to see a better copy of this thing somewhere right did, did yeah. fun city were they able to get some original elements for these three that got released in the first box the three movies um they were all they were all scanned in high def um i don't know i, see, I think they were I, all I think, 2k transfers yeah okay. I, I the the company that owned the multicom i think already had digital transfers jonathan uh, Hertzberg of Fun City normally tries to get a, a new scan for things. So I, the technically, I'm not 100% sure, but they're, um, the HD on this or an HD version of this is not obscure, but it had never come. It's never come out on home video officially. And I have people that I know who are talking about tape trading bootlegs off TV because that, that's another one of these, just like Night Slaves, which you'll get into, which played over and over and over where people used to tape trade uh, Dreams Don't Die. And this is actually the first official home video release. Hmm. And are they, uh, is Dreams Don't Die, is the version on Fun City, is it 16.9 or is it 4.3? All three of the movies, which are Freedom, um, Death Ride to Osaka, which also came out under the name um, Girls of the White Orchid. Uh, That's the one on the box set, by the way, that is... Um, that is actually the R-rated cut, the European cut. All three of them have both options. 
Oh wow! Uh, both great. aspect ratios available. So that's that's you know Jonathan's attention to detail. You should not be surprised. Yeah, it's not like the Liberation Hall high risk uh, release. That I, was I just I, I look. I enjoyed that very much. I, I've 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 I'm get, I'm trying to convince Mike to tell more people about it. So. I, yeah, I'm very excited to pick I, that. They up. They might be sold out. I don't know. I don't. I think oh, they probably no. ran like six copies off of their home printer or whatever. <laughs> that was, that's the release. Uh, okay. The home printer. So, yeah. but let's, we're 20 minutes in and we haven't said a word about Night Slaves yet. Well, we've said a, a word. But Night Slaves, directed by Ted Post, uh, starring James Francis, Franciscus and Lee Grant, based on a 1965 novel by science fiction writer Jerry Saul, who is best known for writing episodes of The Outer Limits, Star Trek, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and as a ghostwriter for Charles Beaumont on three episodes of Twilight Zone. And Night Including Slaves Living Aaron, Doll. Yes, Living Doll, right. Great one. Um, and Night Slaves aired as part of the ABC Network's Movie of the Week series. Now, when um, Dreams Don't Die, was was that still the name of the franchise on ABC, Movie of the Week? Or was it just, had they moved past Movie of the Week at that point? Um, I think it might have. You know, I'm not 100% sure offhand. Uh, but other TV movies in that in the movie ABC Movie of the Week were Duel, The Night Stalker, and Killdozer, which I watched, also watched this week. Um, nice. For the that's first real time like a forever. That's truly like a golden age of TV movies. It seems because I think you you hit on it earlier. Like right now, we're really basking in this new renaissance of TV movies being rediscovered. I I don't I don't even know what I can like root that back to. I don't know if it's just so many distributors are out now picking up films and we're seeing films getting two, three, four re-releases on various formats and there just seems to be this whole untapped culture of films and, you know, films, TV movies specifically that were such a part of the culture at that time and they entertained but they also seem to be some of the most, at least in my estimation, some of the most disposable entertainment they would be on and then you know they would they would play again and again but after so many years i'm sure a lot of them went the way of the dodo so a lot of people only have their memories to to grasp on to so i think that that's really cool and special that there really seems to be like decades now of entertainment that people are just discovering for arguably the first time i know a lot of these i'm discovering for the first time night slaves specifically yeah, well, and that's true of so much of TV in the 60s and 70s um, that was, you know, either went live and was maybe kinescoped, but maybe not, or or then in the 70s was recorded to tape, but then those tapes would be reused, like, um, and just recorded over. Like, I know, like, the entire uh, Channel 68 Uncle Floyd show, like, mm-hmm. what, you know, is not... Yeah. It doesn't exist unless it's in people, you know, people's VHS recordings. And I don't even think VHS was around at the beginning of the Uncle Floyd era. Yeah. But I know, I mean, I've got, you know, five or six episodes still from my high school uh, VHS recorder. Oh, um, wow. But yeah, but you can't get these things like they, yeah. they don't even exist anymore. And, and yeah. you know, they probably exist in some people's private collections. But, you know, again, those home recorded VHS tapes, I mean, you know, Night Slaves is sort of feels like. The, the print that's out there feels like sort of halfway. It feels like a home recording. It's got that sort of scan line at the bottom, and you're like, yeah. what's going on? Yeah, the one I saw must have been a VHS or Betamax recording of some 
like the sci-fi channel i think yeah isn't it doesn't have the logo in the corner yeah. it's got the mm-hmm. just like little sitting ring around saturn kind of thing is that sci-fi channel sci-fi yes. yeah. yeah the the addition that i found that's on youtube I, I asked Dino if this was the same version that he had seen, and I was really delighted that midway through, it was clearly somebody's VHS recording, but oh, was, yeah, yeah. what was great was that midway through, a bumper appeared on the bottom of the of the image, and it said KHJLA Channel yeah. 4, I think. Yes. So that was awesome. That's that right. was fantastic. So I did watch, I've watched both of those recently. I watched the KHJ one and the Sci-Fi Channel one. And I, you know, it's hard for me to tell if there are any real differences uh, or any major differences or any like you know the original time slot I, I do towards the end of the episode I'll pull up I've got the New York Times from September 29th 1970 which is when this thing premiered and there's a mm. there's a half page ad for everything that was on ABC that night and this mm. was in an hour and a half time slot so it couldn't have been more than 70 minutes yeah. or so at, right. you know in full length um, and it might have been you know I, I well, yeah we'll, we'll see and then but um so yeah, so it was originally only scheduled for a ninety-minute time slot. So I don't think that I don't think that the sci-fi version was any more edited. Um, but uh, you know, it's a Bing Crosby Productions film, and I'm in, in a, I guess that's it was shot at the Warner Brothers lot. Yeah. Um, Pretty fascinating, you know. which is something that I loved about this film because you see that um, you know Warner Brothers uh, at the end of the credits. But this is a film, a TV movie in particular. I, I mentioned to Dino that I love that it is so much a backlot picture. I love when it's very evident to the viewer that this is totally a backlot film. I love movies like that. Anything from Gremlins to, to Kill a Mockingbird, when you can really tell that it's a soundstage, but it's a really good soundstage. I don't know if mm-hmm. Night Slaves is a particularly great soundstage movie, but I just I just love that it's very aware, like that you spot that. I loved that about it. I think the soundstage is great. I think the production design is what's lackluster. Yeah. You know, it's just <laughs> yeah. it's very it's a very threadbare. Mm-hmm. You know, it it, it it almost looks like they didn't do anything to it from the last western that, that yeah. film there. Totally. Well, and it you know, and it's got that it, it, you know certainly the fact that it's on this back lot that feels like it mostly was used for westerns contributes to the to the feel that it's almost like a western, but it's also got other elements in it that also give it that western feel. You know, there's sort of a lynch mob that gathers in the final third of the movie, and it starts feeling like one of those Bud Bedecker movies or something. You know, mm-hmm. it's uh, there's 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 definitely like you know there's that whole thing where he's locked in a jail cell and there's people outside clamoring for his head mm-hmm. and yeah. you know is the sheriff going to let him go and all sure, that stuff sure. and it's very very much a western. Um okay so I saw I'll I'll talk about my history with this movie since that's what brought us here but I saw Night Slaves uh on the ABC 430 movie sometime in the mid 70s maybe the late 70s but I feel like I couldn't have been more than 9 when I saw this thing and I and it made an impression on me, like as I've talked about before, as a kid in the 70s drawn to like horror movies and supernatural and sci-fi stuff, I was accustomed to uh, running into and then being shaken by all these movies that were coming out or were on TV, but had these unhappy endings. Um, uh, that, that movie Equinox, where those kids are lost in the forest, I, mm-hmm. I remember seeing that as a kid and being like haunted by the fact that it had this unhappy ending or a shock ending and this movie that really messed me up was this other tv movie which i need to watch at some point the haunts of the very rich has anyone ever heard of or seen this thing i've heard of the title but i don't think i've seen it it's kind of like this creepy fantasy island ish kind of thing but all these 
very rich people arrive at this resort and then discover that they can't leave. And then they discover at the end that they're that they're dead. And this is like sort of a way station on their way to the great beyond. Uh, and that really freaked me out. But I remember this Alan Alda movie, the Mephisto Waltz. Okay. Um, yep. And actually, Paul Wenko's directed both of those movies, Haunts of the Very Rich and Mephisto Waltz, and of course, Dirty Mary and Crazy Larry. Mm -hmm. But so I remember by the time I bumped into Night Slaves, I was convinced that the Here Comes Another movie with sort of sci-fi and horror overtones and undertones that it's not going to end well. And I was bummed out watching it because I'm like, I like this James Franciscus guy. And I'd also, I'm sure, seen Beneath the Planet of the Apes by the time I saw this. Although I don't think I registered... James Franciscus is being the star of Beneath the Planet of the Apes because he doesn't have his stubble and he, he's yeah. got a you know a little bit of a different look. And plus, I was a kid and wasn't really paying attention to any of that stuff. But mm. but of course, Beneath is probably the ultimate bummer ending of any <laughs> to say 70s the least horror sci-fi movie. <laughs> but I will say that the ending of Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which we should talk about, because again, uh, this movie was directed by Ted Post and he's the director of Beneath the Planet of the Apes, and in fact. The reason that this is a Ted Post and James Franciscus movie is because Ted Post and James Franciscus enjoyed working together on Beneath, and then the very next year, or maybe within the same year, same year, yeah. sort of went. Well, they were released the same year, but but Beneath was Beneath was on the shelf for almost a full year after it finished filming. Oh, why Fox, is that? Oh, right, because they Fox was having a, yeah. Fox had a horrible, horrible right. sixty nine nineteen sixty nine with uh, Hello Dolly and Star. And uh, and they were trying to you know just like boost their numbers and say let's save this for seventy when right. we you know when we know we'll we'll have a hit and then they ended up having two even bigger hits that year with uh, with Patton and the one that really took them by surprise was Mash which I think was the second biggest movie of the year. Mm. Yeah, there's a nice little documentary on the Blu-ray of Beneath the Planet of the Apes that I was watching last week and it's got some great interview footage with Ted Post and a bunch of other people and. You know, Ted Post talks about how the how the ending of Beneath came to be, that there was like some friction with Charlton Heston, who really didn't want to do the movie. Right. And then he finally was convinced by, I guess, Daryl Zanuck to do the movie. No, it was Richard Zanuck. Richard Zanuck. And then Richard Zanuck got fired. By his own father. Right. (laughs) And Mm, that's um, cold. (laughs) So he was like, you know, fuck Beneath the Planet of the Apes. And Heston was doing it was still going to do it but only wanted to work for three days and only wanted to be in the beginning of the movie and wanted to be killed off at the beginning of the movie and then they came up with this idea that he could still just do the three days but they wanted to start with him and then bring him back for the ending of the movie but there was some kind of friction about whether he was willing to do that or not and somehow they got the message that i'll do it but only if we blow up the world and end this fucking series for real at the end you know i'll be part of that ending and so then, so that's <laughs> little did little it. did he know yeah right exactly there's always a way out of those things yeah, right um but ted post said nobody liked the, you know they all were miserable about the ending but i think it's fantastic like you like, know like the i i i love all of the planet of the ace movies but beneath ranks kind of low for me lower oh, yeah. 
lower mm-hmm. and I, I it probably has something to do with the ending and the fact that charlton heston isn't as present and, and, and you know it's it's kind of unfair to franciscus because it's like you know he's he's taking over a, a beloved role he's basically filling in for heston a character that everybody kind of loved in the original so th- there's a lot of weirdness going on a lot of bizarre stuff and beneath and for that i do appreciate but overall as a film there's things that don't hit for me i'm I'm I love deeply have deep deep affection for the third and fourth installments the fourth one in particular I really really love it so that was um, the first film we ever talked about on 70 movies yeah yeah conquest and it's a great one and beneath also has the least amount of apes in it I mean it spends so much time in the with the mutants in the underworld and um you know, I think in, that's in subconsciously half. what it is that I just there's I just wanted more apes and I didn't get them. So. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and then the and then the ape stuff that we do get is no good. Like the the, the least interesting parts of Beneath are all the ape stuff. It's like who absolutely cares? right. Yeah. Uh, what's his name from Barney Miller? Just sort of barking out stuff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> endlessly, you know. Right. They really didn't. You know, it, it it took them a long time to figure out what the sequel was going to be. And they had, they had Pierre Boulet do like a, a treatment and uh, Rod Serling wrote one and they just, nothing was working. And I think ultimately they came up with something but sort of forgot that it was an apes movie. They were yeah. like, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, but the stuff that they did come up with, which wasn't ape, apes related, I find, you know, insane and great. Like I, 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 I still think, and just watching it this week, I was like, this stuff... With the with the people living underground and their worshiping of the bomb and the stuff where they take off their masks and the makeup, yeah. you know, that exposes them as like these sort of illustrated men looking thing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I love all I love all that stuff and I think the ending is amazing and it's always so disturbing to me, all the stuff that goes on with uh, Nova getting like strangled by James Franciscus and yeah. and and that fight that Heston and Franciscus have in the in the cell is fantastic like it feels real but you're right there is this you know once you put them in the frame together it's like more obvious than ever that it's like sort of like charlton heston and then charlton heston jr you know like james franciscus is like a foot smaller than heston and uh you know just seems like a little mini me version of taylor um although i will say watching franciscus in beneath and, and in night slaves you know in a lot of ways he's a more interesting actor at times than heston or at least a more uh down to earth like less sort of wooden and he's not yeah constantly i agree like with that. gritting his teeth and yeah you know flexing his neck like they used to do on the sctv yeah it's a city of <laughs> apes <laughs> yeah but, i think, he's, but I I think say, he's good in night slaves franciscus yeah, yeah. And it struck me that he's doing a lot of headache acting in both of those movies. In both of these movies, he's afflicted with some sort of like either people are like beaming an annoying tone into his head, which is making him strangle people, mm-hmm. or he's got a plate in his head <laughs> that's yeah. giving him a headache. But he's doing a lot of that headache. Well, also, isn't isn't Andrew Prine sending out, isn't he beaming out signals out of his head too in Night Slaves? Yeah, it's not sort of that annoying, like, you know, feedback tone that, that happens in... No, in you know the, what? I, it's not. I noticed the the sound effect, it must come from some, like, classic bed of sound effects, but it's the exact same sound effect that Steve Martin hears when the sissy Spacek brain is talking to him in The Man With Two Brains. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. That's a pretty good catch. Wow. All right. But well having seen Man with Two Brains about 50 times, it was uh, unmissable. 
<laughs> so I actually let's let's go around the table here and and just give me each of you give me your sort of you know, your brief thoughts about how you felt about Night Slaves, seeing it for the first time at this at whatever age you are now, as opposed to being a nine year old sucker who was watching everything he could <laughs> on the Four Thirty movie. <laughs> All right, uh, who's go ahead? Okay, well I I mean. I did. I knew nothing of Night Slaves when Dino uh, informed me. I think he, I think he knew in advance uh, what film we were going to be covering. And I said, "What do they want to talk about? <laughs> what movie is this again?" I said, "Okay, I'm I'm down for anything. I love to be exposed to anything new." Um, I will say this about Night Slaves: I was deeply invested in this film for probably more than half of it. I like the way that this film kicks off where we have Franciscus and Lee Grant, who I've met before. Um, I met Lee. Yes, I met Lee Grant a couple years ago. I had her sign my Damien Omen 2 poster. Um, Nice. (laughs) Yeah. So she was awesome. She was awesome. Um, So I I like that it kind of throws us right into it. And we see that there's kind of trouble in paradise between Franciscus and his wife, who's Lee Grant. And then almost immediately there seems to be an affair brewing with uh, his co-worker and then we're thrown into this like troubling accident so I'm I'm like to- I'm totally with this film for I'm like ooh scandalous she's cheating on him now he's you know he's he's uh you know he's bedded up because he's in this accident so they're kind of in this interesting situation now so I was very into that and then they go to um the Warner Brothers backlot in this old yeah. Western town. And again, I'm still really interested. I'm like, where is this going here? So a lot of things are brewing at this point. There's like a touch of dream logic being sprinkled across this thing. Um, I, the influence of Twilight Zone is very thick, at least to me. It, it feels that sure. way. So I, I'm liking all of this. And then, of course, um, all of these things that may or may not be happening of, you know, the townies um, coming in pickup trucks and taking people away, his wife specifically, and he's questioning what's real and what's not real. So all of that feels very Rod Serling, Twilight Zone, and I'm so I'm in this. I'm totally in this. It only starts to fall apart for me when um, it kind of detours into the extraterrestrial. That was <laughs> that was well, a choice. Yeah, I mean, I do think this movie is like sort of like the tale of two movies, and then yeah. it 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 drops its big twist or like reveals its secret at just over maybe the halfway point. And it Mm -hmm. really feels like it would have been a better movie if they had saved the answer to whether, you know, the whole movie had been about to me, at least if if the whole movie had been about whether James Franciscus is experiencing the after effects of this traumatic brain injury or whether there's really something weird going on. And then whatever that is, which is bound to be dumb, I guess, but whatever that is, if they'd saved that, for another 15 or 20 minutes, I think it would be a, would have been a better movie. Yeah. But you're and, right. And Once the plot is revealed, it's kind of like, what? And yeah, it, isn't, it, isn't it right? Sorry, Mike, but isn't it right at the moment when Andrew Prime reveals himself? He's not the village idiot. He's actually. Yeah. Um, yes. Although, although, what's her name? Nailil? It's Lillian backwards. Nailil or whatever. Yeah. She sort of explains Nailil. things. Yeah. She yeah. explains things before they actually bump into Noel slash Fezbini. Is that the, that's his Fezbini? Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> um, but but I think when she's telling the story, you're not totally sure. You know, the right the movie sort of like 
suggest that everything that James Franciscus is seeing and hearing could be in his head and you could be inside of Franciscus's head. But at a certain point, you're like, oh, no, no. This yeah, is real. I, I, this and I, and I like that e- even in like the dialogue, like like they, they lay it out there. Right. I, I, yeah, I think there's a moment where Lee Grant is comforting Franciscus where she's like, it was an accident. And his reply is, was it like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, we think I don't know. He's not sure. Maybe we were not. Maybe we're not supposed to be sure either. So all these things are it, it's it's leaving these breadcrumbs of it being very interesting. But you're right. Once they kind of. um reveal their cards halfway through i'm like eh. <laughs> i didn't expect that necessarily but I'll, I'll go with it yeah dina what about you well um i i i agree with my with mike on a lot of this uh i had i had not heard of this um i'm still kind of surprised uh i'm still kind of surprised that it's it's never been on home video um as far as i can tell and I wonder if I, you'd think there might be some out, some some uh, outer limits or Twilight Zone compilation that might have stapled this on for being connected. But um, the thing that really stuck with me about this is I'm I'm still trying to figure out, still trying to like, I'm still trying to deduce some of the intention behind it because the first time I watched it. Um, well, okay. The, the last time I watched it this evening, I, I'm just like, wow. I really feel bad for Clay, for James Franciscus, and <laughs> and and, and the, what you were saying about being freaked out as a kid by TV movies. All my memories of this stuff are really, the, the, you know, I'm the I'm the second youngest here, but I, I remember watching a lot of really creepy shit on television because I didn't grow up with cable. Um, and it was all New York area television. So a lot of this stuff kept playing and playing. And I remember all this, all these movies that really did get that dark. And I appreciated that. And I'm thinking more that initially, yeah, you know, I'm not really that much of a, of a, of a, I like the Twilight Zone fine, but I'm not much a, a sci-fi guy in general. But I, the more I think about it, the more there's so many directions this whole thing could have gone. Like this, this whole movie could have ended up being one elaborate staged plot, ridiculous as it might be, by Marjorie and what's his lawyer's name, Mike, I think. Yeah. Just Matt. Matt, Matt yeah. Just the to Dave, convince the, the, the David Grow character, who's not actually David Grow. <laughs> but it's, actor, um, whoever that actor is reminds me so much of the dude from Rhoda. Yeah, it's uh oh, and no, two I, minute I, warning I, by the way. I have it. I just I just watched a movie with him. It's um Scott Marlowe. He shows up in this movie called Brainwash or Circle of Power. This crazy. Speaking of a theme from your previous podcast, uh, a, a betterment EST training type psychodrama from the early eighties. <laughs> He's in that. Anyway, um. What really stuck with me about this is I'm trying to figure out so many TV movies snuck in some interesting political angles and some, you know, some of the writers who are involved in TV, you know, you have you, you, Lee Grant, of course, was, was blacklisted. But what really struck me is you have this device where he's stealing the labor of all these people against their will, it, it, you know, and then. And then the, there's this other twist where you have this alien force that is stealing labor. Okay, that's pretty obviously, you know, communism, it, it, communism inspired at least from this reading. Um, but then there's this mob justice angle. So it's like it's like which form of which form of like social social activity is worse, and which one is coming down harder on Clay on, on the Franciscus character. Um, and I thought that's kind of. 
that's kind of my my big takeaway. Did, did I really need the romantic angle? Not exactly. Are there some plot holes in it? Of course, like a lot of TV movies. Like, why is it that the steel plate deflects him from uh, from mind control? Right. Yet that that pesky force field gets in the way. So, but there, I, it seemed to me for 1970, there was a lot of stuff in this that would have read as quite creepy in the 70s and. And at that point in 1970 and was kind of ahead of its time. So it's definitely interesting uh, in a TV movie way, I think. Um, but again, I, I think it, 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 I'm really surprised this didn't make it out somewhere. Um, that didn't result in a, at least a bootleg. I, I, I wonder if some of the guys I know who handle bootleg video um, know about this movie. Because considering the cast in it and the people involved, you'd think it would be better known. Yeah, and uh, Dino, I'm going to come back to that because I want to argue with you about what I think this movie's about after watching it three times this week and really thinking, okay, what, what is the subtext? What are we really? What's this movie really trying to say? If it's trying to say right. anything, and I've got a whole other pitch for you, but Jim, let's hear from you. Oh, I'm interested in hearing that, Ben, because I, I found it ideologically confused and oh, sure, nar- narratively <laughs> unsustainable. Uh, you know, d- d- despite what could have been, I suppose. Um, I guess the writer, Jerry Soule, said that uh, there were several improvements on his book. And in fact, he liked the movie more than he liked the book. But I, I don't know. I haven't. I read the haven't first read two it. pages of his book because it's available on Amazon and it, and it's different and it's really badly written. Like it's yeah, so, okay. Wow. <laughs> Okay. But it's, but the first part of the book takes place from Matt's perspective, and it's all sort of in hindsight, and he's sort of telling, you know, in this old-fashioned way, like, I had this strange case. Because Matt is a psychotherapist in the book, and it's and oh. a question I have about this movie, this movie, I, I agree that the best part of it is, the is you know, it, it, it sort of goes downhill, although I do like the very ending, and I do appreciate... Um, this sort of, I don't know if there were actual influences or not, but, you know, Spielberg was making TV movies around the same time. And there is, mm-hmm. you know, towards the end, it does start to feel that's got a little bit something to do with Close Encounters and the whole idea of the Richard Dreyfus character going up into space and leaving his life behind. And what I would say that I think the movie might be trying to do on a subtextual level, it's this metaphor about dropping out of society, which it seemed like was a very right. 70s thing to do. And it's mm-hmm. actually the text of the movie. It starts out with James Franciscus's character saying to his partner, who is that Matt guy, which is hard to figure out because what starts off to me is like, oh, this is fast paced and very economical. Like we're going to get this, you know, this thing is just going to fly by. They've got 70 minutes and they're going to use every single one of these. So that whole pre-credit sequence I think is awesome. And I totally. think the credits are awesome. Yeah. But then you're right. They get to the small town and then after, you know, after a half an hour, they, they start running on fumes and there's like, okay, we're going to do another night and there's a repu- repetition of stuff. And mm-hmm. how many times is he going to be talking to that dopey girl and yeah. having that romance? <laughs> but I do think that the whole thing works kind of like as a metaphor for, the, for, the, for how difficult and painful and, and how many things you're really sacrificing if you're saying, I'm going to drop out of society and I, I'm going right. to make a fresh start. That it's, you know, that he's forced to really really drop out like he's you know he he may think he wants to and but by the end of this movie he really has in a way that you know is permanent i think that's a really good point and 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 the most powerful thing in the movie and i think it would probably be the thing i would remember the most if i saw this as an eight or nine year old 
are the scenes where Franciscus is trying to keep the zombified Lee Grant from, you know, literally joining the rat race, you know, this mm-hmm, labor exactly. force. Yep. And she, you know, he just, there's nothing. And she's just a robot like driven to get on the back of that truck and get out of the hotel room. And he's, you know, he can't do anything to shake her out of it. Um, and that's, so that, 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 I think that speaks to your point. Yeah. Oh, I, I think so. Also, I mean, one of the most striking things is is that pre credit credit sequence. You know, before he gets to having his two martinis and then an accident mm-hmm. uh, while driving. But you know, what, what does he say? He's like, I, I'm no longer. I don't. I no longer want these encumbrances. I don't want to be a slave to things. He's he's rejecting. He's setting up not only his rejection of materialist society, giving up his half of the business and whatnot, but also. Um, even before we know that there's like uh, that she has um, that 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 Marjorie is involved in adultery, he's already he, his partner says, "Well, what what about your wife?" He says, "Well, I haven't told her yet." They're already mm-hmm. setting up this this conflict between the two of them, where already she's seemingly not interested in his dropping out of of materialistic society. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, I also think it's interesting to think about these network you know, over the air network made for TV movies in the seventies and, and to try to think, and I'm sure people have done this and, and you know, I'm sure there's been hours and hours and hours of podcasts devoted to it and, and books and stuff about what, what tradition these movies are following, what space they're filling to. I mean, to me, it seems like in the seventies in the, on these network TV movies, there's a lot more like genre films and B movies that are, you know, not, particularly about talking about society at large in any direct way. And they're not these event miniseries and they're not these like, you know, ABC after school specials, but up, but at night, you know, sort of like a drama about like, you know, uh, rape or, you know, teen abuse and things like that, which is, I I feel like the seventies gave way to the eighties and nineties. And that became, that became the only thing that these TV movies were doing was trying to do these serious Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you 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 really only start to see that in the mid mid to late seventies, right? And then uh, with, with, with those kinds of you know issue of the week type things. Whereas the, issue of the week, wh- thank you. Wh- whereas the films of the the, the TV films of the early seventies are more kind of speculative, premise driven things. Has anyone ever seen uh, the the James Brolin one, um, Trapped? where he's just literally accidentally locked in a department store overnight where they have several no. Doberman no, yes. guards who <laughs> yes. are ready to tear him apart. Yeah. That sounds terrific, and I'm not a big Brolin guy, but I would love to see that. <laughs> came, came out the same year as Westworld. But, uh, oh, wow. Did yes. you say Doberman guards? Yes. <laughs> not, to be confused, not to be confused with Franciscus and the Doberman gang. Okay. No, but <laughs> maybe there was maybe, – maybe, maybe the – the popularity of this TV film led to the Doberman gang, or I wouldn't be surprised if the same Dobermans are in both films. <laughs> the inevitable mashup should happen is what you're saying. So. Right. Yeah. And so then I think there were a couple of decades where, where like, like you're saying the TV movies became these issue of the week movies and you didn't get these kinds of things. I mean, you rarely got them. Whereas it seemed like these, you know, all these genre TV movies, these fun sort of horror and sci-fi and, uh, things were much more ubiquitous, but then I think now in recent decades, 
since the advent of like cable and you know all, all those channels that have sprung up i think that 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 those b movie made for tv or made for cable movies have have picked up the mantle of these 70s b movies so that you know yeah sci-fi channel and lifetime and hallmark channel yeah well, that's all they do Thank is you. they churn out these these genre films whether they're romances or uh, right you know or, or or horror movies or science fiction I'm I'm really happy that you picked up because I actually had that in my notes about how nowadays it seems like the Hallmark Channel is almost like exclusively known for being the TV movie thing. Because in doing research, um, there seems to be some sort of like um, differences between TV movies that were made on cable versus um, made for cable movies, meaning HBO and Showtime would produce their own movies specifically just for them so there seems to be some sort of distinction between the two but it, it's interesting to me that you know the tv movies were such a thriving uh thing you know they were so part of the zeitgeist in the 70s through the 90s and then i can't speak for how accurate this is because this is from wikipedia so <laughs> be warned but it, it's interesting that by the year 2000 it was about like only 146 tv movies were produced by the major networks and you rewind that to only five years before that, where there was like double, more than double those productions. So it's a shame because, you know, you look back at these things and TV movies specifically of the 70s, they were these wonderful training grounds for people. You know, Ted Post, you know, he, here's a guy that had his foot deeply embedded in television, but then he would also flirt back and forth with doing movies. So it's interesting where, like, you had these TV movies where, you know, like you said at the start of the hour, you know, Spielberg was making Duel and whatnot. So you had these people that were really, they weren't doing movies or, or, or you know, television movies that were based or connected to any sort of IP. They really got to do these self-contained stories and do it on a budget and kind of show what they can do. And it's kind of a shame because now especially now i think tv has always been a writer's medium i think that that's always the way that it's been but nowadays te you know people refer to television being like oh it's it's surpassed cinema it, it's just gone surpassed the storytelling but i still think nowadays even more so it's a writer's medium where you don't necessarily go back to something you watched on hbo or this or that and say oh did you see last week's episode the, the direction was fantastic you know you watch true detective and you're like all you think about is the writing you know those dialogues and whatnot so in this very long-winded way i'm just thinking that it, it's very it's a shame that these tv movies you know um of this ilk are gone because you had these guys that were really sharpening their craft and now you just don't have that anymore you know now it's everything's a limited series on netflix it's the people versus oj simpson it's true detective and it still very much goes it, it's kind of built on the foundation of the writer and you don't have these guys like ted post or perhaps the next spielberg getting the opportunity to do these things and doing a duel and being like that's the next guy that's the next guy you know well, it's almost reversed in that there are these like, you know, established auteurs, like world class filmmakers who then turn to television, and, right. you know, and cable. And they're making, you know, so that Nicholas Winding Refn has a whole Amazon series and David Lynch, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, Twin Peaks and uh, the ABC Twin Peaks is one thing. But, you know, then he went on to make a whole bunch of more legit, great, you know, right. movies movie movies and then came back to do you know this amazing twin peaks the return which yeah. i think which i think 
crosses all the lines off between cinema and TV and is its own yeah, insane, very amazing, crazy thing. Indeed. <laughs> I totally feel... I totally feel like uh, I, I've lamented over how many good feature film directors have had to follow the money and follow the way the industry has gone in recent recent, recent decade, I guess, and and gone into making television shows because I don't have the same interest in them as I have self-contained stories. I, don't, I, I hate feeling like I'm getting milked along as like there's another season and 300 more characters are added and so forth. But I also think it's interesting that television also functioned kind of as a way to deal with being in director jail like when feature film directors like i think of you know B- billy friedkin yep. uh you know he, he had uh he had a couple of movies it didn't quite click and he, then he ended up being able to go to television and do these um what are they called cat squad films in the 80s for instance yeah, and they, they're unwatchable but yeah well, they, they they have Steve James in them. There's a lot of crap okay. that's worth watching Steve James in. So I'll, I'll say that. Well, you've got yes. One of them is called Neely. Python. Wolf. One of them is called Python Wolf, which is yeah. I, I can't figure out who came up with that. But go on. <laughs> yes. No, but I, I Jim can step in because I think he feels exactly like you do about self-contained stories and movies versus TV. Yeah, I'm, I'm a movie guy. Hundred um, percent. I, I, I just watched Squid Game and I enjoyed it. Uh, mm-hmm. Watched all nine episodes pretty quickly but then i felt i felt <laughs> like you said dino you know at the end like okay you're just setting me up for another season where they're going to introduce another 300 characters and you know and i as much as i enjoyed it i don't know that i'm that invested to, to, right. yeah. to, to go back again i mean you know there's maybe, something but... about that right like i you know like um ben talked about directors you know big time directors that have kind of followed the money or kind of stray towards television and there's something where like i'm you know there's people that i'm always deeply interested in the next thing that they're doing but when the next thing that they're doing especially nowadays tends to be television related i'm excited but i'm also like there's a little bit of air leaking out of my excitement at the same time like i think some one of the most recent per- people that have kind of joined that you know followed that line is tim burton tim burton's doing wednesday on netflix he's doing an eight episode um wednesday adams television series and i said oh that seems something you know he's always flirted with doing an adams family project but i was like an eight episode series detailing an older wednesday I mean, I'll watch it, but there's just something that seems so odd to hear, like, Tim Burton's directing an eight-episode season. It's just, there's people that I've just, it's the same thing with Spielberg. Like, I think if Spielberg decided he wanted to do a whole season of something, I'd watch it, but I'm like, I don't know, I just, that's somebody I always, it's like, it's an event to see their newest production. So it's, it's a weird sort of an excitement to get adjusted to i suppose see you're a nicer guy than i i just won't see it but <laughs> at the same time it, it like no to go back to the point you know i try not to go totally negative but Dino, let's stuff. let's yes. let's be up front right now please, i don't know if please. you've said this on your podcast like oh how often do you see anything movie tv or anything that's been the last 25 years <laughs> thank you i literally told mike he's gonna spring that question on me too like i said that to him last <laughs> night um how often, you know, I said to myself, this is coming and I should try to figure out what the last thing I watched was. Yeah. Um, the, um, how often? Infrequently, uh, especially now. But, uh, no, I, I, look, I do watch things. We were just talking about, we were just talking about, uh, what's his name? Edgar Wright. Yeah. And I realized, strangely enough, that I've seen every Edgar Wright movie, I think. 
mm-hmm. uh, much to my chagrin. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, and 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 Mike hasn't. Um, you know, I still I still have the dual Netflix for some reason. I still pay for the disc and the it's a subscription. So does Jim, right? So yeah. so I still yeah I'm with it. Uh, so I still have stuff. You know, I think I have the uh, Scott Walker documentary. What's the last thing I watched that Wait, came out? But that the, Scott uh, Walker documentary is at ten years old, isn't it? That's recent for me. Yeah. Uh, what, do you, what, do you, what do you look? I, I I'm a I'm a Wait, record dealer. Did you dealer. see the Edgar Wright Sparks documentary? Oh no, I haven't seen. I, I, I want to see that. that. That I'm I'm actually not crazy about uh, seeing, but um, <laughs> feature in terms of feature films, um, I do watch. I'm more interested in finding more obscure stuff from the past. That's true. It's a, that's that's easy. It's it's an easy it's an easy target. I'm an easy target with that stuff. But I also work in a store full of old movies. I've done my best for 15 or so years to build myself to to build myself a borough where I live in the 20th century as much as possible. I mean, I am a guy who sells records for a living. But <laughs> what 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 I was what I was gonna say is is what what I notice a lot with a lot of these long going TV series is you know to go back to the idea of being a movie guy. Um, storytelling just seems to take a back seat. Like in a lot of things, I realize marketing is more important. Mar- you know, stretching something out so they can feed more new music into it. Yes, I'm a music guy. I notice when I'm a former music promoter, so I notice when music is being you know is being thrown at the audience in a way that's meant to stick. And I just think I don't like the idea that storytelling has to take a back seat, or the idea that I have to learn about an entire quote unquote universe just to follow one standalone story. Tell the story in 90 minutes. That's been perfected for decades. And now people seem to be chewing, you know, t- trying to take that apart. Here, here. Um, I'm definitely going to try to watch something in the past, like three from the past three years. I, I, this would be easier if um, I was a host of the Alamo draft house and hopefully will be again, depending on uh, uh, in Yonkers, New York. Um, which is where Mike and I incidentally first met Mike McPadden. Uh, and this would be an easier question for me to answer if it was normal times, because I did see, like, you know, I saw the Suspiria remake on the big screen. I would see the occasional... Well, you wasted a, a shot there. <laughs> Two and a half hours. <laughs> you would have been oh, better I, I, invested I, watching Basic Cable. Oh, I, I well, I won't pay for basic cable. I'm too much of a luddite uh, for that. But um, no, I actually liked it. But uh, look, I, I I speak German. To me, it was like a German movie. And holy shit, how hard is this to do? It has a more linear, logical plot than the original Suspiria. That works for me. Well, I'll take that. Sure. Okay. Um, but, but anyway, right. I do we're see some in, things that are new. Well, so. we are living in crazy times where there's all sorts of lines that have been blurred and screwed up. I mean, you know, like like. Like Steven Soderbergh, who does a lot of work in TV, mm-hmm. um, but I, the the last movie that he made, which didn't get a theatrical release and was just HBO Max, and I think it was never meant to get a theatrical release, is to me a better movie, self-contained movie. No, the it's the uh, what is it called? No sudden no. move or something? Oh, oh Benicio del Toro and. Uh, right. Yes, Don Cheadle. Yeah, is a more cinematic movie than some of the movies that he made uh, that that did get re- released to theaters, but is at least as an as interesting a movie. And um, you know, I would stand by that as like a movie, movie, mm-hmm. um, and something that I'd love to see in the theater. But but I think that that of course with COVID, that's been happening all the time now, where movies that were meant for theaters are being shown at the exact same time or or exclusively, you know, on TV. And people's TVs are bigger than ever. 
I mean, right. and you know, and or there's like Jim Healy who's at home watching stuff, but I mean, he might as well be in a movie theater. He's got a gigantic. <laughs> Didn't you just buy a new system. TV? Yeah. yeah, I did too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Splendid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I am, for the record, I am actually going with very low expectations to see the new Bond movie tomorrow. Yes. Oh, the, that, the, new, the new movie, the new movie that is labeled a Bond movie. Okay. I'll, I'll, oh, I'll put that out there. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> well, you know. So, what can I what, tell you? Do you, you like I, any of the Daniel Craig Bond movies? Oh, um, it's a very sensitive subject, Ben. <laughs> it isn't that sensitive. I, I, I like, I like Casino Royale, but you know that they're. I, I, I don't know. I think I, I really feel like the. Um, I really feel like uh, the Bond. I mean, you're movies, among friends. I don't think any of us are big. James yeah, I'm, so far, no, I'm totally no, no. with you. No, I, I just I just think the Bond movies right now they hold a mirror up to the current state of films. Um, Mike and I were just talking about uh, how um, Christopher Nolan his style influenced the Bond movies, which to me is kind of an embarrassing sign for the biggest franchise in film. There, I like Daniel Craig a lot. I like him a lot more than I liked Pierce Brosnan. I mm-hmm. think both of these actors made better movies in between their Bond entries, and I think the the Bond series. I kind of feel like the door kind of closed on it with um, with uh, uh, Dalton, with Timothy Dalton, uh, because I think it really needs the Cold War. I don't think it really works outside of the Cold War. I don't think it really works without Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman. I think uh, Broccoli's kids are just have been trying and struggling to find adequate like antagonists and just can't figure it out and they just get more and more cartoonish that said i am a i'm a more guy i I love more and i i love more as much as i love connery you know like but to me there's a canon and it's been closed and what's what's happened since are like you know again vehicles to sell heineken vehicles to to support all the massive network of of sponsors that have that rely on those movies being big and explosive and at this point cold and just kind of modern action movies not necessarily reflecting any of the charm that i liked as a kid when i did take bond movies seriously mm-hmm. yeah well you're very here. well okay <laughs> let's get back to night slave for a couple minutes um just because i wrote a whole bunch of notes and i'm sure some of you did too and i haven't gotten to really any of them but i i wrote an elaborate sort of uh, plot synopsis, but I'm just using, I'm going to use little bits of it just to point out some of the things that I thought were great and not good. Um, as I mentioned, I think the first couple of minutes are my favorite part of the movie. And um, I will, I will say that one thing that I, that stands out right off the top and I love throughout is the music by this guy, Bernardo Segal. Is, are any of you familiar with his other work? No. Or knew no. of him as a composer? Didn't he write the Columbo theme? Did he? Huh, let me. I, I'm, I'm clicking on his Wikipedia. Um, that would be interesting. He's got a selected uh, filmography here, which doesn't. Uh, he scored the. Oh yeah, he wrote music. Well, he said it, it says he wrote music for TV series including Columbo, Airwolf, and the 1976 <laughs> documentary To Fly. I'm a huge fan of the Airwolf theme. By the way, are you? Which is, which is connected to? I, can I actually you hum bought, it? Can you sing it? Uh, it's it's a, it's an electronic theme. I can tell you where I remember buying the twelve inch single in an outdoor flea market in Berlin once, but I'm not going to hum it because you're a musician. 
Right. And I am not, but uh, but th- but th- that's but that's him working with the same people because several Airwolf episodes and several Columbo episodes of the same producer are still um, what's it Everett Chambers I think as, Everett as Chambers yeah yeah. Well, he did the music for this movie that I do remember a 1973 TV movie called The Girl Most Likely to. That's mm, that's written? the one TV movie I wanted to, I wanted to talk about. That's my that's my 4:30 movie. 330 yeah. movie in Chicago that I saw three or four times that written by fair, Joan Rivers. Written co-written by Joan Rivers. I'm intrigued. Wow. <laughs> first first starring film role for uh Stockard Channing. Mm-hmm. And a movie that that I always found very funny, but always creeped me out too. Just there's something very hmm. I mean, it's a satire. It's 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 uh it's meant to be a black comedy. And yeah. Might have been the first black comedy I ever saw, you know. Wow. And he movie. also did the music, by the way, for uh, Homebodies, which is interesting. One of the other few features huh. he did. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, you know that's, that's Homebodies is interesting. Where's Homebodies film? Was it Cleveland or Cincinnati or? I'm not sure. It's one of those. It's an indie kind of uh, again a uh, you know a, a a black absurdist comedy from the from the mid 70s. Directed Finally by Larry, coming to Larry East. Very used. It's coming out on uh, it's coming out on Blu-ray very soon from yeah from Kino. Kino. Yeah, and he he directed very few movies. Used did, but he did make Trick Baby, which is a total favorite of mine. Really great yeah. film. Anyway, we're, we're we're way off. Well, anyway, his work in Night Slaves, I think, really elevates the film, and I think it's, I you know, it feels to me like one of those sort of Dario Argento Goblin scores. It's got all this harpsichord stuff going on, a little bit like Phantasm, it sounds like, and it mm-hmm. predates all that stuff. Um, so I think it's a very cool. Yeah, for all I know, he cool. came up with that brainwave sound that was used in Man with Two Brains again. But uh, <laughs> right. I don't know. I have a feeling it was one of those, one of those uh, effects sounds that was on but a the... library tape. Yeah. But the, the launch into music, by the way, I agree with you. Right after that pre-credit credit sequence, the credit sequence might be the most exciting part of the whole thing. I mean, I did think this held my attention, but launching right into that music really made me feel like I was watching TV and excited to watch TV. Yeah, yeah. It's such it a also good does that fun thing where it turns the screen into these monochromatic color yeah. things. Yeah, that, that I love that. The Very seventies. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but the, the I'll say that one of the major things that irritates me about this movie every time I see it, and it also happens at the beginning, is that he's in this car accident and it's being he's being talked about as having this major traumatic brain injury that requires surgery and a plate in his head. And then the very next scene, he's in the car driving and they're going off on their sort of getaway vacation where he's supposed to be recuperating from this injury. So it doesn't seem like a lot of time has passed. Um, right. I think later on she might mention how much time has passed, but th- th- we never get any physical uh, manifestation of this brain injury. His hair hasn't been, like his head isn't shaved. Yeah. Uh, there's no scar. There's nothing. We're sort of like, in a way that feeds into this idea that maybe this whole thing is a weird, you know, hallucin- hallucination or dream, or this whole thing is him being dead in a car crash and imagining mm-hmm. this whole thing because... You know, there's nothing. There's no actual proof that he was in a car accident and has any kind of brain injury. That's By the way, this point. it's almost the same premise as a movie that's won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. It's in wide <laughs> release right now called Titan. I was going to see it yesterday. Yeah, yeah. it's about a, a woman who has a, suffers a traumatic car accident, has a 
steel plate put into her head and becomes a serial killer and uh, passionate uh, fornicator of cars um, mm -mm. in the film. <laughs> a la the Cronenberg crash? Yeah, a little yeah. bit. A little bit of crash, a little bit of uh little bit of night slaves. <laughs> well, double I, feature. I, I, I think you're I think you're basically speaking to one of the things that makes a lot of television movies great that that when you have a, a good director, a good producer I suppose as well, um the strength of, of a lot of TV movies comes down to being efficient and knowing the things you can't show, you can't prepare for, you can't pay for. And leaving that ambiguity to enhance mood, and and I think that's one of the things I like the most about '70s TV movies. I mean, the horror ones are the obvious ones, uh, your bad Ronalds and what have you, where mm -hmm. they 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 creep by creep. They, they work that they work by they work by virtue of their creepiness, like that eerie feeling of ambiguity. Like you know, there is all this ambiguity in this movie. Like, what's the worst? What's worse? What's worse to, to, to this, this you know, completely put-upon guy who's been in an accident? Is it the police? Is it the mob? You know, the mob of people who just want him dead for just because he's there? Or is it the aliens who are stealing labor just to get back to wherever they came from? Or is it his own, is it his own imagination because he doesn't look like he's really been through that much, even though we're led to believe that he has? That is an interesting point that Ben makes too, because I I felt the same way watching it initially. I I was I was more, I was like I had more questions once we transitioned to them <clears throat> getting to the the western town, because I'm like, how much time has passed? Like nothing seems like anything has changed. So that's an interesting point that that feeds a little bit more into the whole dream logic aspect of it, which. It's a shame that they kind of abandon it when they do, because the, I think the film would have been elevated and benefited a lot more if they would have played with that idea a little bit more. I Again, <clears throat> just to reiterate, like I just think that when they introduce the whole extraterrestrial mm -hmm. element to it, I think that's when it drops off. The timing of which they present that, and I think just the whole idea of it in general, I think that the film would have been so much more stronger on the the whole zombie kind of like you know hypnotized townies and his wife and the affair that uh, that alone yeah. i thought was way more engaging than anything having to do with aliens well i i think that a major flaw of this movie and what also kind of is charming to me about it is it kind of feels like a movie that a nine-year-old would have written like the whole the, the science fiction elements are so sort of goofy and rudimentary and and so not fully formed at all and I think that's the problem. Like, this thing could have turned into a science fiction movie and it could have been good. But the science fiction movie it turns into are these two dopes in human form just sort of saying, you know, just like the dumbest, most expository stuff. And it's like, oh, I am a worker bee and he is the leader and he won't <laughs> yeah. let me do this stuff. Yeah. And where we're from, well, one of my favorite lines, when he explains what they are, when Noel says who they what they are he says we are a i wrote this down we're a psychokinetic race we're right, almost right. all mind you know <laughs> and they do that thing where he says like i'm just wearing this form so that you can understand me you wouldn't your mind would be blown if you saw the real me right and that's the part of this movie that feels like more than it being although it sort of is in the tradition of sort of science fiction b movies but it's also very much 
coming out of the Twilight Zone and, and, and even more so Outer Limits shows, where this feels like it's just a slightly padded version of one of those hour-long episodes of one of those shows where it's like, uh, you know, it's it's really just trying to make it through the hour. <laughs> They're yeah, trying like right, right enough so they can get you to the end of the thing, and it's like, well... What's the plot? I don't know. We got to write two more of these things in the next three days. So right. <laughs> these guys are aliens. Their ship broke down. They're really all mined. And they just take these guys for four hours every night. And they just want to be left alone. But this guy wants off too. And they fall in love. And that's it. You know, it's really just like, it's yeah. the kind of thing that me and my friends would have sat in a backyard and said, ooh, we should make a movie. And this would have been the dumb plot that we came up with. <laughs> you know, minus all the sort of marital strife and, and dropping yeah. out of society. Because that would have just been... Not not anything we were thinking of. Right. <laughs> I, I find it fascinating how many TV movies. I think the I don't know if the 70s were the same as the 80s or if this was con- uh, um, a consistent thing through the run, which is at least 30 years. I think TV movies really started in the 60s. These things were tend to, tended to be shot in the space of like two weeks. Uh, maybe three weeks in some cases, uh, you know, if they were going a little bit bigger. So they really, they really did crank them out. But you know, you're totally right. There's a lot of things in there, and I definitely learned that in some cases, some TV movies, like the romance angle, could have totally been something added in at one point, saying, "Well, we've got, we got to get the value for the fact that we, we've got, we, we've got." Um, Lee Grant in this, and some of these movies were literally Monday night movies, actually. Uh, that's uh, the other two in the box set in the, in the Fun City box set were Monday night movies they're both female led movies why? because guys are watching Monday night football and they figure women are not so right. in some cases that would explain why oh this this stapled on romantic story is there but I, I do like I, I, it, I do like with all this ambiguity one of the great lines to me is I think Franciscus basically just comes up with because he never really knows what the hell is going on anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's, I think he says something screwy going on in this town. <laughs> like that was, the, and that's and that's kind of like what this, that's pretty much the tagline for this movie, you know? Right. So. <laughs> you know, and this is of course Leslie Nielsen before he started doing all the comedic roles that he became yep. famous for in his later later part of his career. But he, but in this movie. I find it a strange performance because he seems, sort of seems halfway into like a go- he he halfway seems to be go- goofing around in this movie and and halfway his his character is very strange yeah uh, well, but he does yeah, have I, the funniest line in the movie towards the end where he like once uh, Franciscus jumps oh, yeah. back into his sports car he's like he's like, I knew it he's just as crazy as ever. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then there's a chase sequence of course yeah yeah, yeah. I think he really relished I think he relished the moments which he was like under. Like that one scene where he and the other the other deputy his deputy are holding Franciscus. He's literally mm-hmm. like he's like looking at the camera like like you know yeah. like almost salivating. So I think he really got the most out of those. But I don't know. Maybe he's just having fun. I I think it showed his range. I think if you look at his stuff in the seventies, you know before before he becomes a comedy star, you know something like uh, he's a totally straight laced. You know, captain of the ship and the Poseidon adventure, and then he's mm-hmm. he's a kind of a um, uh, guy with mixed feelings about his job and night slaves, right? I mean, he's uh, yeah. <laughs> he's 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 not quite uh, uh, the redneck sheriff that you know that 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 would have been the cliche in, in this, and then in yeah. something like Day of the Animals, where he's just this sadistic rapist yeah. and you know just horrible coward, yeah. Um, and, uh, and I totally agree with really, that. I, I, a really I, good I, actor. 
Yeah, go ahead, Mike. He's yeah. I agree with that. I agree. He's he's. I think Nielsen's really understated in this performance, and it kind of it, it always shakes you up because he's so known for his comedic persona, the Naked Gun movies, et cetera, et cetera. So then when you see something like this, that's a little bit of a more understated, quieter turn. It kind of throws you for a loop again. You have to remind yourself, like, oh yeah, Leslie Neeson wasn't always the funny man. Then, like, watching this, it like, it, it you know, I've, I love this movie, but it always reminds me, like, how fucking creepy he is in Creep Show and stuff. And oh, I was yeah. like, yeah, he he really had a lot of depth as an actor way before he became known as this funny man. So I I like him. I, I there there is not a particularly large amount for him to do here, but every time he's on screen, I'm always like. How is he going to act in this? You know, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm always but, curious the choices he would make here. Yeah, I, well, I, 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 I thought he like, gave this standout performance in the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, but I also think that the script really lets him down because they set him up. He's supposed to be the boyfriend, maybe even fiance of the missing daughter uh, who turns out to be Annie slash uh, Nalal or whatever the hell her name her yeah, alien yeah, is. Yeah. <laughs> But once they establish that in like the first scene of the movie, it goes nowhere. And even right. when the father keeps coming to him and say, don't you care about Annie? Like he doesn't really have an answer for it. And it, and it, it doesn't pay off at all. Like there, nothing ever happens with their relationship. And he doesn't seem to be concerned about her disappearance really any, you know, at all. Like he yeah. walks into James Francisco's room and he says, have you seen this woman? And James Francisco is like, yeah, I spent the night with her last night. And he's like, oh, okay. And then walks back out the door and he's like, I'm going to watch him to see if he bumps into her again. It's like, a, yeah, it's just so yeah. badly written. That, that that's probably like, oh, the most Lord. glaring like disservice to the script and the character. You're absolutely right. Because it's like, how's he like, why is he playing it that way? You could argue like, oh, because he's a fucking alien and that's just the way he's emoting in that way but that's just a cop-out but yeah you're you're 100 but he's not an right. alien during the yeah. day none of these yeah. people are right no, none of them are but like that that's the thing that's so bizarre about it and i think yeah you're you're totally right that's the thing at least from a character standpoint but i do that. but actually you just said something that made me think well that there is a point for it like a meta point about that that they that the movie is trying to keep you in the dark and trying to keep you guessing about what's going on. And I think one of the things they do is make all the town people weird in their own ways and their their responses to things don't quite seem to add up and aren't normal. And as an audience, you're like, oh, I wonder if the whole town is in on some conspiracy or whether it's all, you know. So in that way, it works. It works as you're watching it for the first time as, right. a, as a question, like, what's up with Leslie Nielsen? Well, it turns out it doesn't make any sense and there's nothing up with Leslie Nielsen. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't know that until it's too late and you're like, okay, that movie's over. Right, right. Um, so there are these known entities in this movie, but I wanted to quickly jump into some of the people that I wasn't really familiar and wanted to hear if you guys know them and have other, like you, Jim, you mentioned Andrew Prine, who's Fez, Fezbini slash Noel. Uh, to me, he reminds me sort of like uh, one of the Hutton guys, like either Jim Hutton or, or Tim Hutton. And maybe yeah. a little Anthony Perkins and Dennis yeah. Weaver in uh, Touch of Evil kind of a character. But but he's, again, very understated, both as like the town goofball and as the alien leader. Uh, yes. But do you know his other work? Like, were you um, him from something mostly, else? I mean, he's a really busy TV and movie actor, you know, mostly low budget indie stuff when it came to movies. Um, in particular, two horror movies from the late 70s. One, Grizzly, which is... Mm-hmm. William Girdler's companion piece to uh, Day of the Animals right. um, with Leslie Nielsen. 
and uh, and, and a haunted house movie where he plays an academic along with um, Richard Crenna called yeah. The Evil. Yeah, that's a good is, one. Like uh, worth seeing. And, um, and yeah, he seems like busy. he'd be more at home as the academic than he is as the sort of the town goofball. Yeah, well, he yeah, plays he, a great academic in a Kolchak episode. Oh, okay. okay. But Great. anyway, yeah, sorry. Yeah, he was, yeah, he has a kind of, you know, you'd expect him to see, you know, a tweed jacket with patches on the elbows. He, he looks very comfortable there. He, yeah. he reminds me a lot of another kind of blandish, uh, Lee Handsome actor from the same era, Frank Converse, who was, uh, oh, yeah, who mm. was on that Larry mm. Cohen show, uh, Cornet Blue. And moving uh, on as well. And moving on, yeah. Well, another guy in this movie who has a one note sort of performance but you know does that one note really well is this guy um john kellogg who uh, i wasn't particularly familiar with but has a a lot of people in this movie have have filmographies that are just mind-blowing in their quantity like they've been in like you know a hundred movies stuff like his first movie is from 1940 a movie called high school and his last movie was in was in orphans from 1987 the alan j pecula movie Hmm. um did any of you guys know of this John Kellogg? Who's the he's the he's the father. He's the guy who runs the diner whose wife dies and yeah. whose daughter is the alien woman. You know, one of those faces, right? Instead, you know, yeah, you know, you've seen him before. And I think he was in actor. Out of the Past too. I think he had a small role in Out of the Past, if I'm not mistaken. He again, he was like somebody that had a face that I know I've seen him probably in a million westerns or noirs. But I think it was really more Andrew Prime that I remember because I remember mm. him specifically playing Father Tom in, in case you guys didn't know, the best Amityville movie, which is Amityville 2, The Possession. So. Okay. <laughs> Slide that in there. Nice. Uh, he, he's, also, he's also in a pretty weird, he's in a pretty weird Western. It's a Western slasher uh, called A Knife for the Ladies. That's a Larry G. Yep. Spangler movie. Uh, he, he, he made a couple of weird, uh, of really offbeat Westerns, including a few Fred Williamson ones. And I'm seeing that he's a, he was also in like three or four episodes, repeated char- same character in St. Elsewhere. But that outside of that, I don't think I would have known him from, from, from anything offhand. We're talking about Prine or Kellogg again? Kellogg, Kellogg. Oh, Kellogg no, Pr- yeah. Prine has a much bigger uh, body of work, I think. Yeah. What's the easiest way to tell Lee Remick and Lee Grant apart in your brain when you're trying to... I, I I struggled with this today. Um, I, By the I'm way, I just sure. realized one of them is in the Omen, and the other one's in the Omen too. So that's yes, really yeah. that's unfair mm-hmm. to us. That really, like, <laughs> that makes it nearly impossible. Mike, you know her. Call her up. And yeah, I know. I just had lunch with her last week. I had to talk to her about this. <laughs> By the way, speaking of speaking of uh, miscellaneous actors in this, um, one of the ones you know a callback to to you know to this idea of dropping out and and how the the film being a product of 1970 and a product of all this stuff, you know the culture at the time. There is also this Virginia Vincent character. Did you have this one, Ben? Y- yes. Uh, yes. I, I love this. I love this little callback because he starts off by dropping out, and he and and uh, and, and he Clay again says, you know, uh, we'll be the outcasts. Uh, I'll be a dropout because I'm not happy on the treadmill. But he, you have this woman, Mrs. Crawford, played by Virginia Vincent, who makes the point, you know, very of the time. Oh, oh, I know, I know about these kooky people who have crazy ideas about being rounded up by trucks because my son Arthur goes to Berkeley and he has hair <laughs> down the middle of his back. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So she's she, great. 
so the, the you know the idea of that weirdness versus normalcy you know playing in this like she, I like that she's this agent that just delivers that one that one quick scene Virginia Vincent who I looked up and was like oh okay she was in the hills have eyes yeah yes mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and also she's uh in Ted Post's very weird 1973 oh, God. movie The Baby The yeah. Baby yes the baby I watched is... some of that today and I was like what the yeah, that's that's something. That I was ready something. to watch it. I did, I bought a copy recently, uh, but uh, I've been ready to watch it. But I'm like, I can't get I can't get wrapped up in that right now. She also appears in a movie. Uh, I kind of have a real soft spot for the Tony Rome movie. She's in Tony Rome, mm. and like a bunch of these people, including uh, the right Lee, the Lee who's in this movie. Uh, she's also a Peyton Place uh, has roles in Peyton Place. Mm-hmm. Very good, very good. Um... Tisha Sterling, who's the romantic alien lead. Uh, I didn't know anything about her. I think she's all right in this movie. I mean, again, I think that she gets stuck with some really bad dialogue and not much to work with. But, um, you know, it's kind of I could see him falling for her. And she wears an amazingly short sundress in that final scene where they literally I mean, this movie literally does that. We're running towards each other in slow motion in the meadow thing. Like, I, it, yeah. it's almost hard to believe that that's what they did in this movie. <laughs> that was a choice. It. That was a choice. I mean, and the, I think the biggest thing that she did was Coogan's Bluff, which if you're doing like a yeah. seven degrees of Ted Post, obviously, you know, Ted Post worked with Eastwood on, uh, you know, Magnum Force and Hang Up High. Yep. So, yep. Good. Right. That's a good connection to make. And her hey. last movie, she's she's alive, but she retired from acting a while ago. But the last movie she did was that Breakfast of Champions with Bruce Willis. Oh, oh wow. Alan Rudolph film. Alan Rudolph movie, yeah. Wow. Well, that's a note to go off on, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can't, you know, once you go there, you can't top it. I will say this thing, I'll tell you this one little story that the, the this backwards name thing, which is kind of a, would would have been, I think, a more clever plot twist if they had come up with a with a backwards name for her that made more sense. Like Noel and Leon, that's cool, but you know. Nalal, I don't know. But it reminded me a lot of when I was a kid, and I think I must have been younger than I was when I first saw this movie. My grandmother, whose name happened to be Lillian, actually, she gave me this birthday present that was a personalized storybook. And it told, it was like a picture book, but it had words in it. Um, And it told the story of this giraffe. But the giraffe's name was Yijneb. And Yijneb was my name, Benji. People called me Benji when I was a kid. Backwards, Benji with a Y. And that was honestly the only personalized thing about this book, which was a real book and had a spine and everything. But the, you know, whatever this goofy publisher had, you would give them the kid's name and they would, every time, you know, every time they said blank the giraffe, they would plug in your backwards name. Uh-huh. And, so, and it was, and it looked like it was like in a different font than the rest of the text. You know, it was so <laughs> obvious, but, uh, but as soon as I saw that Nalal and realized it was a backwards, I was, oh my God, this is like my giraffe book from like seven years ago. <laughs> but that's what nice. passed for an exciting gift back in the pre-computer age, I guess. Um, um, Isha yeah. backwards is almost a shit. <laughs> <laughs> almost. Yeah, almost. I feel Close upstaged enough. by that right now. <laughs> um, Go ahead, Dino. Uh, no, the, the the guy the guy who uh, I was happy to see, but man, like I didn't realize anything that he had done, uh, and it's mostly TV. Is Morris Buchanan? 
who I will always associate with. Mm-hmm. He's the pimp who picks up uh, coffee at the beginning of coffee. Who she has the iconic scene. Pam Greer pulls the, the sawed-off shotgun on him. Well, this, this yeah. is the end of your rotten life, you know, whatever, before blowing <laughs> his head off. Yeah. While, now, while an addict is watching them have sex. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. As one now, does. Both IMDb and Wikipedia claim that Sharon Gless is in this movie in an uncredited role, but I'll be damned if I could find her any of the three times that I watched this. Hmm. I kept trying to think if she might be the woman that in the first scene where they're in the diner, there's somebody who's talking to Fletcher, the owner of the diner, the, some woman who's like leaving, but... She's that's the awesome. closest to Sharon Glass, but I don't think that that's Sharon Glass. I don't think Sharon Glass is in this movie, or if she is, she's literally just sort of in those mob crowd scenes. Like, she doesn't have any dialogue. That's for right. Sure. Interesting. I'm assuming that's where Alicia Cook Jr. is in the mob scenes. Or well, did I miss I don't, Alicia I don't... Cook Jr. is listed as unconfirmed. Not even, un- like, Sharon Glass says uncredited, and William Sargent is uncredited, but Alicia Cook is unconfirmed, which to me is like bullshit. He's not in there. Yeah, <laughs> or again, he was or drunk maybe he got in the tent. Yeah, he was left yeah. over from the last movie they shot on that lot. And they, yeah, <laughs> he, he's part, he, he's actually part of the back lot. He, yeah. They, they, yeah. they leave him <laughs> propped up there. So. Yeah. Um, you know, this movie feels like it had absolutely you know, like Jim said no budget at all for production design so not only do you never see an injury on James Franciscus but you never see this spaceship that is you know the main right. plot device in this movie you you sort of barely see a hole at the end of the movie I don't yeah. know what that is if that's like a match shot or something it's like a they do this one helicopter shot at the very end which feels like it's in a completely different location from where we've been seeing their bodies lying in this meadow and there's some sort of dark spot that i guess is where the the ship crashed but am i right even in those sort of factory scenes or the warehouse scenes where they're i don't even know i don't even know what these people are doing they they're they're literally taking like metal it's like they're moving mufflers like that's what it looks like or or like bumpers (laughs) to cars like (laughs) yeah they're picking burrs off of things But but the alien lady walks out of something, which I thought maybe that's the spaceship. But then I thought no, it just like looks like one of those construction site like you know office things, like a like a tin can office that she's coming out of. Yeah. I couldn't quite figure that out if they shot it like a foundry or something. But yeah, there's some very weird abstract work going on. Looks like some guys <laughs> is looking at like planks of wood for some reason. Yeah. 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 Spaceships yeah. were different in 1970. Yeah. There's a lot going on. Well, thank you, gentlemen. This has been, I mean, thanks for suffering through the 70 or 65 minutes worth of this thing. I was oh. glad to sort of reacquaint myself with it, but uh, a little it, went a long way. Um, it was a pleasure. And, you know, if, if not for anything else, there are interesting people in it. Ted Post did do it. And then if, you know, keen-eyed viewers in the credits will notice... This was edited by Michael Kahn before he became Spielberg's right-hand editor, oh, which is interesting. Okay. So great, that was I very totally cool. didn't catch that. And that thing, yeah, for Michael that. Kahn, and, and it's funny when you think Michael Kahn because he's been connected with Spielberg for so long. But when you go back to um, the seventies, I mean, he he started his whole career practically editing well over a hundred and seventy episodes of Hogan's Heroes, and then he did a he, yeah, yeah, that's where he completely honed his craft and then he did a series of um 
black exploitation films like black belt jones truck turner truck turner exactly right the one best. of the best one of the best and then it's just, it's just so funny because he's just been so aligned almost exclusively with spielberg for so long so it's always kind of a surprise to see him on anybody else's project least of which something like night slaves so i thought that was interesting yeah so this film as i mentioned premiered tuesday September 29th, 1970, and I have the New York Times ad to prove it, but what I also have, and we haven't done this for a while, I think we only did it ever once or twice, I've got the TV listings from the New York Times for that day, and the TV listings in the New York Times always have fun little one or two line plot summaries or opinions about the movie, um, but I'm going to tell you every, every movie that was showing in New York City over the airwaves, uh, over the TV waves that day. Starting Holy at 9 shit, I wish I had a drink right now. All right, <laughs> I'm actually, this is exciting. Okay, even though I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm intimidated to, to be in the presence of Jim for this, but can please carry on. No, no, go ahead, take over, Dina. Well, this isn't, this isn't so much of a, you know, like, guess the thing. Uh, or yeah. maybe it is. I, I could read the description, you can try to guess what movie it is, but let's not do that. I'll just read, I'll tell you what these movies are, and you can say whether you know this movie, whether you've seen this movie, and what you feel about it if you've seen it. At nine o'clock in the morning, and this is what I loved about TV in the seventies in New York. Like, the, you won't believe how many movies were being shown. Like, it feels like even today, with two hundred, three hundred cable channels and all the streaming services, it still feels like there was more available for you to watch in a single day on five channels in New York back in nineteen seventy. <laughs> nine o'clock in the morning on Channel Nine from nineteen fifty-two. Beware, my lovely, with Ida Lupino and Robert Ryan. Wow. You guys mm-hmm. know this movie? I do know yeah. that movie. I own that movie. I haven't watched it yet, though. Is that the one that's she didn't direct it? Is that the one Don Siegel directed, or is it? I don't have that information, but I'll tell you what the New York Times says: Cloistered Widow, Cloistered Widow versus Psycho. Snug acting, some shivers, but familiar pattern. I love Robert Ryan. Tough. Yeah, mm. it's it's not bad. It's 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 good. I, I think uh, Harry Horner directed it. Okay. Now at 9.30, if you were bored of Beware My Lovely or you were bored of of watching uh, on Channel 4 for women only with Aline Saranon, uh, you could switch over to ABC Channel 7 for The Sheriff Was a Lady from 1964 with Mamie Van Doren and Rick Battaglia. Oh, man. So here's what the the New York Times says about The Sheriff Was a Lady. It says, anyway, Mamie tries. Jesus Christ. She does try. At 10 o'clock in the morning on Channel 5, the New York Times has the first movie of the day that it puts a bullet point next to, meaning it actually recommends this movie. And that was a movie that I'd never heard of, but it's probably my fault. Virgin Island from 1960 with John Cassavetes, Virginia Mm. Maskell, and Sidney Poitier. You want to hear the plot of this thing? Please. Young marrieds on remote key with neighbor Poitier. Nice people, nice balmy little picture about absolutely nothing. Which doesn't sound like much of a recommendation, but they do (laughs) recommend it. Interesting. John Cassavetes, 1960. That's got to be what? One of his first films, right? Yeah. IMDb says 1958. Huh. I mean, that's early because wasn't Shadows 59? 59, but he'd been acting in films since 55 or 56. Right. In oh. fact, this is his second film with Poitier. They did Edge of the City together. Oh, wow. This is. Look at that. Look at Jim Healy. Directed wow, by Pat see. Jackson. Written by Ring Lardner Jr., who won the Oscar for MASH in 1970. Hmm. Huh. Look at that. That that Yeah, that's a new one to me. Oh, based now... on a book by Rob White, who was um, 
William Castle's main screenwriter. He wrote House on Haunted Hill and uh, 13 Ghosts. And... Splendid. I'll see that. Yeah, I'll watch that any day. Okay, now at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, you could watch The Galloping Gourmet on Channel 2, which I would have probably been doing. Oh, yeah. Channel, Channel 4 had a show called It's Your Bet, which I don't remember. Channel 7 had All My Children. Channel 11 had The Allen Show. I don't know if that was Burns and Allen. Could Steve Allen? Maybe. Yeah. A-L-L-E-N. But there were two movies, one on Channel 5 and one on Channel 9, so you had to pick. Um, this is pre-VCR. Channel 5 had, from 1952, The Lusty Men. Oh. War Robert, movie, maybe? Robert Mitchum, Susan Hayward, Arthur Kennedy. Nicholas Ray. Nicholas oh, Ray. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. yeah. We showed it at the Cinematech about four years ago. Oh, okay. Ooh, I, I love Ray. We had a print. Uh, it was one of our Sunday afternoon films. The Times said, atmospheric, lean rodeo drama. Oh, yeah. The rodeo drama. For that. Sure, I saw this movie. Interesting. Well-piloted by director Nicholas Ray. Solid of this kind. That's a... a that's a big New York Times TV listing line. Mm-hmm. That's that. a very, Solid very good kind. But you could also, if you had already seen that or whatever, rodeos weren't your thing, you could watch on Channel 9 from 1940, Vigil in the Night, with Carol Lombard, Anne Shirley, and Brian Ahern. Scottish nurses. Creeks now, but not Mrs. Lombard and Shirley. Both fine. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's you not bad. Movie, it's, yeah, it's not bad. It's a George Stevens film. Uh, might have been the last film he made before the war, although maybe that's the more the merrier. I may have um, that because I know Kino did those two Carol Lombard box sets. It might be in one of them. No, because I think it's a I think it's a Warner's film. Oh right, those uh, are Universal. You're yeah, right, right. I think it's uh, pretty sure it's a uh, Warner Brothers or no, it, maybe it's Columbia. I don't know, but it, it's um, yeah, it's not it's not in that no. set, but it's uh, it's not bad. But I'd go with the Lusty Men. So after that, you could take a little bit of a break because no other movies were starting until 4.30. And at 4.30, uh, you could watch The Mike Douglas Show uh, with guests Benny Davis and Henny Yugman and Abby Lane and Michael Burke. Who's Michael Burke? Anybody Michael know? Burke. No idea. Abby Lane was a, a singer, one of, um, I think she was uh, Xavier Cugat's girlfriend before charo right wasn't he the one who had the mm-hmm. and yep. uh, and she's in the uh she's in the last segment of the twilight zone movie she's one of the she's the friendly stewardess who's helping john Lithgow. nice very nice um but on channel four you could watch uh from 1964 send me no flowers recommended by the new york times hmm. rock hudson doris day tony randall i'd watch that sounds the good la- the last rock and doris movie from 64, yeah. I'd watch that. Uh, deftly amusing, surprisingly tasteful comedy of hypochondriac who thinks he's doomed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but if you didn't want that, you could go on Channel 7, the 430 movie, uh, from 1964, another 1964 movie, 36 Hours, with James Garner, Eva Marie Saint, and Rod Taylor. That's a, um, that's a mindfuck movie. That's where uh, they... They capture James Garner. He's knocked out, and they and they put him in a room, and they convince him he's in an American hospital. But it's all German actors mm-hmm. playing the part, and they're trying to get information out of him about a raid that he knows. And they stole that for the last Mission Impossible movie. Starts off with that same premise. Yeah. Yep, that's right. I would watch that. That sounds great. 
Yeah. Well, the time says it's over theatrical, tricky, and hold ridden melodrama. But I wonder if that's mold ridden. Huh. It says hold ridden, but I don't know if that's a typo or maybe they're just saying it's stuck in one set or something. Yeah. Uh, oh, mold ridden, you know, spies, mold ridden. Well, then that, that would be sense. two typos in one. <laughs> uh, Damn them. <laughs> well, anyway, so then that's all we've got for movies until. Uh, hmm. <laughs> uh, until 8.30 uh, when on Channel 7 ABC was Night Slaves uh, original drama with James Franciscus, Lee Grant, Leslie Nielsen Tisha Sterling, Andrew Prine boy they list them all yeah. uh, they about were proud the mystery, of this one yeah, about the mystery of a town's enslavement by a powerful compelling force <laughs> That's a pretty efficient I, way to sell it. I found a synth. Uh, I'll send it to you, Ben. But I found a syndicated article um, with interview by uh, with Franciscus about about the uh, about the movie. Oh wow! Where, he, where he's just throwing. Yeah, it, it showed up in at least two um, two newspapers. One of which had a full page, or it looks like a full page, that was titled "Things That Go Poof in the Night." <laughs> <laughs> uh, where he actually starts throwing out miscellaneous, like, how do you explain this kind of stories. Like, um, he pointed out that in a five-year period shortly after World War One, exactly 16 men named Ambrose vanished into midair under circumstances that offer no rational explanation. And this is Franciscus so, throwing out these factoids? This is, this is Franciscus, yes. Wow. <laughs> He said, there are some happenings of this nature that defy normal explanation. Television's former Mr. Novak and the star of the film Maroon states, quote, you could still get into arguments about them. Well, you know, Ted Post talking about James Franciscus in the battle in the Beneath the Planet of the Apes documentary talks about him as a real thinker and a thinking man's actor. He wanted to know the motivations at all times and was really interested in figuring out why somebody was saying what they were saying and all that stuff, right? Jim? And according to Post, he wrote his that monologue when they're in the subway, right? When he's yeah. talking about, you know, yeah. whatever happened to the society. Right, and and all those guys sitting around a table talking, like, what yeah. was the point of all that talking? What was right. the point of being at the table? He's always been an interesting guy. I mean, his body of work leads you to just think, oh, he's a, a you know, a, an exclusively a genre actor, which seemed to be a lot of the credits that he got, you know, Everything from Cat of Nine Tales to City on Fire and then The Last Shark. But, you know, like <laughs> his filmography is just loaded with fun things. Like I, I you know, scanning over it, you know, in preparation for this. I was like, I've, I've watched this guy a ton my whole life, a ton. Like he's been more of a fixture than, you know, you might remember. But I've always enjoyed him. And, you know, I, you know, as much while Night Slaves might not be the most memorable TV movie, you know, Franciscus does you know, some interesting things with it. So I like that for sure. It's no, it's no, it's no killer fish is what you're saying. It's no killer fish. I mean, goddamn. <laughs> I, I did watch Concord Affair 79 last night, which is a Ruggiero Diodato movie that he's one of the leads in. And it, it's a pretty, it's a, it, it's, it, it would make one hell of a, it would make one hell of a double header with Airport 79, the Concord. I'll say that. They both came out the same <laughs> I was going to say. It sounds yeah. identical. <laughs> I would not recommend being sober. I did find um, I did find uh, one random connection between a movie that Mike and I covered. Uh, it might be a little speculative, but um, 
the uh, the um, one of the writers, one of the writers on this movie. Since uh, well, you know, there's three writers. There's the source novel and then two writers. Yeah. One of the yeah. writers is, is Robert Specht, who right. I think might have been the choice for um, a char- an actor that I think you like, Ben. Uh, James McEachin's role in The Dead Don't Die, the Curtis Harrington movie from 75 that we covered, uh, a a, a, a 70s TV movie, a TV horror movie that nobody seems to remember. Um, For some reason, his character's name is Frankie Specht. So that's, and that's uh, Robert Block wrote that. Uh, Another guy who has, who traveled in the same pools of writing, working on these sci-fi TV things, probably referencing Robert Specht. Is the character a writer? He's not a writer. It oh. just it, it, he's not a writer, but it, there's this weird that there's a weird um but consistent focus on the ethnicity of the of the characters uh because there is a potential like master race subplot to the dead don't die and there's no reason why a, why this character he stands out as being um as being uh I think he's a Caribbean character, Mike. Do you remember yeah, this? That's right, yeah. There's no particular reason why he would have a name like Specht, which coincidentally is the German word for woodpecker. Um <laughs> but I, I can only assume that's a reference to a fellow writer. Very good. Thank that. I, I don't think I think that's more than speculative. I think that that we're gonna we're gonna lock that in as legend as fact. <laughs> I, I, uh, thank you. I, I appreciate you putting up with me. Thank you. Now at nine o'clock there was something that I thought was a oh it is a movie. There was this movie, but I think it was a, a TV movie and it was the world premiere. San Francisco International Airport on Channel Four, NBC. No idea. With Van no Johnson, idea. Pernell Roberts, Clue Gallagher, oh, love Clue. Tab Hunter. Tab Hunter. Wow. Yeah. And it all it says about it is it's a crime story. San Francisco International Airport. Clue Gallagher is underrated. Yes. Opposite that, uh, on that's John Llewell, well, well, that's John Llewellyn Moxie, by the way. Oh. Uh, I'm a little quicker on the draw than Jim for this one. So let me have <laughs> yeah, my, never moment heard of, of it. my moment yeah, of glory. Dude. John Llewellyn Moxie and three other directors, but it's episodic. So it looks like it's a four-part TV movie. Daniel Petri, John Llewellyn Moxie, Alan Reisner, and Boris Segal. By the way, John Llewellyn Moxie directed something else that I, I wound up looking him up and doing research for this thing, but I can't remember what it was that he directed that I was like, oh, that I had. Oh, Night Stalker. Yeah, oh, thank Night Stalker. You. Thank you, Night Stalker, right. exactly. But he has, a, he has like a huge body of work, if I'm not mistaken, Moxie. Yeah, I mean, he did Nightmare in Baden County, didn't he? That's right. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. No more need be said. <laughs> um <laughs> On the million dollar movie opposite uh, that San Francisco airport movie was from 1967, something called Nightmare in Chicago, Jim, uh, with Charles uh, McGraw, Robert yeah, Ridgely, and Robert Turner. That's, I think, isn't Robert Altman the director of that? That's right. Is he? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. John Williams well, said, did the music on it. Yeah, I've seen it. I saw, I saw it in an Altman retrospective uh, in Torino about nine years ago. Oh, wow. Ted I remember Knight, nothing right? about it. Yeah. Wow. All it says is it's a police manhunt. In Chicago, the police are manhunting a serial killer of blonde women and end up car chasing him through the complex maze of state highways. Manhunting and car chasing. Who's writing this? Uh, By the way, car chasing and end up are both hyphenated for some reason. I don't know. (laughs) Sign me up for that. Uh, That's the the last movie in primetime. And then, interestingly... 
to me because I just saw this movie, I think, on the Criterion channel. Um, at 11 o'clock on Channel 9 from 1952, you could have watched Macau with Robert Mitchum, Jane Russell, and William Bendix. Yeah, that's an interesting movie. I saw that a couple... Uh, during the pandemic, they did um, mm-hmm. a retrospective on her, and I watched it there. She's great. I love Jane Russell. Oh, she's great. Fantastic. Uh, and William Bendix is fun in this movie, too. And Robert Mitchum's always great. Uh, mm. The Times says, Standard melodrama, but interesting direction by Joseph von Sternberg. Name dropping, I guess. Is what <laughs> yeah, and it was also one of those Howard Hughes Frankenstein productions where I think the, the finished film, von Sternberg, was only responsible for less than half of it. I think it had several directors. Hmm. Um, at 11.30 on Channel 5 from 1957, Don't Go Near the Water, Glenn Ford, Eva Gabor, and Keenan Wynn. Ooh. As you the, see that uh, one still. I'm sure I saw that on the 4.30 movie at some point, uh, but uh, New York Times says limp Navy comedy. <laughs> uh, opposite that at 11.30 on Channel 11, WPIX, from 1948, The Mark of Cain, Eric Portman and Sally Gray. Anybody know this movie? No. Nope. Crime of Passion in Victorian London. A bit slow, but rewarding. But not rewarding enough for them to actually recommend it. No. (laughs) At 1 a.m. on channel... I guess this is going into the next day, but this is the listing. At 1 a.m. on channel 7, I guess this was a series of movies that they would show at 1 a.m. Because they're calling it the best of Broadway... And this particular edition was the Italian Brigands, or as they say, some people in Chicago say the Italian Brigands. <laughs> oh, thank uh, you for that. <laughs> uh, with Ernest Borgnine and Katie Gerardo and Vittorio Gassman. Gorilla Hanky Panky circa 1860. <laughs> you don't know this movie, Jim. No. Borgnine. At 1.10 huh? in the morning on Channel 2, The Late Show. From 1950, Three Little Words with Fred Astaire, Red Skelton, Debbie Reynolds, etc., etc. A musical pip, breezy, tune-crammed, and plenty of bounce. I don't know if I've ever seen that. Musical, still around, you can find it. At 1.15 in the morning on Channel 4, there was something they would call the Great Great Show, I guess to compete with the Late Show. And from 1965, they were showing Johnny Nobody with Aldo Ray and William Bendix, another William Bendix movie. That's wow. a late Bendix, right? Yeah. Murder drama with absurd plot, sillier behavior, plus Irish scenery and lusher brogues. Okay. Well, that's a boy. That's a lot of stuff from the Times. <laughs> <for that. laughs> and then finally, at 3.15 in the morning, if you're up all night, on Channel 2, The Late Late Show. Um, from 1951, Fixed Bayonets with Richard Basehart and Michael wow. O'Shea. Sam Fuller. Yeah, and, uh, and but they right. say it's an obvious theatrical Korean War. <laughs> but now at one thirty, backing up a little bit on Channel Nine, and this was a show I watched religiously, but I don't think I ever got to see this episode. Joe Franklin, the Joe Franklin Show. Guess here's the guest lineup on the Joe Franklin Show, which uh, only ever showed at like one thirty in the morning. Uh-huh. Joe Franklin that night had Ben Gazzara, John Cassavetes, and Peter Falk. Oh, now I wonder if this was Sneezing before Jesus. their appearance on the Dick Cavett, where they showed up completely bombed. I was going to say, if, if there's any way any of those four people were sober, it would have been terrible television. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was no. There's a. It's a very. Fan, I think it's on the husband's 
Blu-ray that came out from Criterion Collection. They they went on the Dick Cavett show and uh, they're literally literally falling down drunk. Wonderful. uh, Falling (laughs) off their chairs. So I wonder, like, do you see Dick Cavett in the listings there, Ben, earlier that evening? Because if it could have been the same evening, they might not have made it to to Joe Franklin. (laughs) Dick Cavett was on PBS, right? No, back then it was ABC Late Night, I think. Oh, okay. Merv Griffin at 11.30 had Johnny Brown, Peter Lawford, Suzanne Plachette, and Dr. Kurt Wagner. Oh, yeah, Dick Cavett at 11.30. No, he he had Robert Young, Susan Farrell, and John Stryker, and Andrew Shapiro. I bet they did. I bet those guys did. Joe Franklin stayed up all night on a bender, went into a bar and and harassed some old ladies, and then then stayed up until they did Dick Cavett the next afternoon a bit. I like now the that. Tonight Show uh, had Helen. I think Hayes. that's a screenplay idea right there. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it oh, happened like, or not, let's do did it. Did you see that new play that's opening in the UK? It's like tension on the set of Jaws. No, it was Robert Shaw's son, right, playing, playing. Robert oh, is Shaw. that who it is? He's the only one who looks anything like uh, the person they're playing. <laughs> Richard Dreyfus <laughs> and the Roy Scheider leads are terrible looking. Oh, Ben, uh, I, Ben, I know we're running out of time, but yes. I, I, I want, I want to say. Always. How much I, <laughs> all of us, you know, we're living on fumes here. Um, I, 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 this is one of the things that you did, uh, well, well, you and Jim did routinely on podcasts that really, that really kind of activated memories for me. I, I think I'm just, just old enough to remember this stuff. Like, I think a, I think a lot of people don't realize. Uh, I'm gonna guess. I don't know if Mike remembers that, but what what actually happened? I think it was the first Bush regime, Jim. I'm not sure where the national laws were changed to allow for um, to allow for for home shopping networks, and that's what right. killed this whole legacy. Like Gilbert Gottfried always talks about the best film school you could have gone to was regular TV. I grew up, I remember the Late Late Show in the 80s and they were still playing like obscure movies from the 40s because they had to fill all these hours with cheap things they could, you know, cheap movies that they could get. And I have, again, weird vestigial memories just scattered of all these things. And I remember all of these because I watched Channel Five, Channel Nine, Channel Eleven, in New, you know, growing up in in Westchester County, uh, this all city programming, like all that went away, like all of that was there, and some of these movies, you know, fixed bayonets. Some of these movies would be really dull, like you guys would talk about, but it was so stirring for me to be like, this is a thing I can vaguely remember, but you guys really did something amazing for me to see a connection to like just you know Mike talking about fuck I wouldn't have watched that piece of shit or <laughs> or the time that Aaron said to one of those damn times reviews like hey fuck you buddy you know because because <laughs> it was like it was that kind of flip attitude like for me growing up where I did and and you know I'm 44 like that was so it was so easy to identify with because it was like I was just on the edge of that. And I vaguely I had vague memories of that. And it was really poignant and personal and easy to connect to. Well, that's a beautiful note to end the show on. Uh, uh, we'll have to have you guys back on again for something. Uh, maybe not anytime. TV oh, this, this was, was a blast. This was a total yeah. blast. Thanks to and- all of you. Thanks for for for. 
for talking night slaves with me. I appreciate it. Thank um, you, Ben. It was a pleasure you. to be enslaved on this podcast with you guys. <laughs> awesome.